Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of people, places, and things. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah, I'm going to tell you for the second time, because I deleted it the first time, (laughs) (laughs) where did Polaroid go? Yay! Again! Yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, the uh, Polaroid as a company was very sort of special and iconic, I feel, for a long time. It was founded as a company in 1932 by a man named Edwin Land, and it utilized and then sort of further enhanced and improved the diffusion transfer reversal method of photography that involves a transfer of, and this is a quote, an image from a light-sensitive negative sheet to a non-photosensitive positive, end quote. I'm not going to go further than that because I'm not a photographer. Polaroid initially offered a home-use instant developing film camera in 1948, and they sold out of that camera, like, same day. It was super popular. And by 1991, they were doing around $3 billion in business. So this is a big company. This is a big deal. But Polaroid is not quite the perpetual party camera, you know, somebody's got a Polaroid at the party type thing anymore. It's not something you pull out at Christmas so you can send a picture to grandma or bring a picture to grandma that day, stuff like that. So where did they go? Well, they why did they become popular in the first place? Because it explains a lot about where they go. Instant film meant that you got to see what you just photographed. And this appealed to not only just like, you know, mom and dad on Christmas morning taking pictures of their kids opening stuff. But up to prestigious photographers like Ansel Adams and people like that who would get to see exactly what they were looking to photograph. And for someone who uh, manipulated perspectives a lot like Ansel Adams did, it would probably be very helpful to see what a camera is going to see, even if you're going to then use a slightly different camera to get a different image you're still getting a good idea of the framing right away as a camera sees it. And you can bring a picture to grandma that afternoon. You can send pictures home with your friends. You can have pictures right away, which is a really big deal and kind of a novelty. It doesn't seem like a novelty anymore. Well, actually, like physical film does kind of seem like a novelty now, doesn't it? Because everything is so digital. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, when I first took photography, I actually learned how to develop film. And I know that it's like a, people consider it a long lost art, but actually the, the, one of the teenagers I know when he was in high school, he actually learned how to develop film too. So I guess they're still teaching it some places, which is cool. Yeah, it was taught in my high school, but I am not that young, so. And neither am I. (laughs) (laughs) Having a picture you just took was kind of a novelty because you didn't have to either take your picture somewhere and have them developed or develop them yourself with like all kinds of poison and shit. 
<laughs> in your house, but it also meant privacy. And being able to take private pictures meant a lot to people who perhaps didn't want to have to deal with the either the expense of having a developing room and all the chemicals and stuff, or the prying eyes of whoever's developing the film for you. It also meant you could mail personal photos that were technically illegal to mail, such as pornography, which was you could develop it yourself and then mail it so there wasn't kind of a paper trail of who was getting what pictures taken. And I should go into, at some point, I should do an episode on where legal pornography went and where it has gone in terms of mailing and uh digitization and stuff like that it'd be be, that would be fun it would be very interesting the rules around pornography have changed a lot over time for various reasons and so that privacy has a lot of personal value for a lot of people even just people who were in interracial relationships and could send pictures of themselves as a couple just like smiling next to each other or people who were in same-sex relationships who could take pictures with the people that they cared about and loved. Where it, where you were in places where that wasn't considered socially acceptable, or still are in places where it's not considered socially acceptable, having the privacy of a personal photograph of someone you care deeply about that you are not allowed to be vocal about caring deeply about is meaningful. And you got it under the guise of, hey, we're just taking pictures of, you know, Cousin Jimmy's birthday party. Whatever. It's fine. Nobody's going to count how many Polaroid pictures you get out of the camera. So it's privacy that has real value for people who are either desirous of or forced to have privacy. So. I had never considered that aspect of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. So where do Polaroid go if it's really useful for both instant pictures and privacy? So between 2001 and 2009, Polaroid filed for bankruptcy at least, I think, three times. Digital cameras and digital photographs, perhaps from, say, phones eventually, offered instant images and then they cut down on the expensive film. So they allowed for the digital use of photos as well. You didn't have to have a single, a negative so you could make more or a single photograph. You had a photograph file, which is very easy to share over the internet. It's even easier to share, I think, if you're just sharing the physical piece of media like a uh, an SD card or using a cable to share it onto another piece of uh, electrical equipment, you know, computer equipment or whatever, because it's it's a reusable piece of media instead of one picture. And if that picture gets damaged, well, then you're out of luck. It's it's slightly more difficult to damage a piece of data by letting it get too humid in your house. And it's easier to move an SD card than it is boxes and boxes and boxes of photos. Agreed. So, the digitization of film lent itself to a lot more sharing, which is part of the point of taking pictures is sharing images or having them for yourself. And it gave rise to the sort of sharing of photography via social media. So Polaroid did not necessarily fit into that digital 
that digital setup. Uh, they stopped producing their land cameras, which were the famous sort of flip open flash cameras. And they stopped producing film for them in 2008. And Fujifilm actually continued to make a film that fit the Polaroid camera after 2008, but they actually they stopped in 2016. So, huh. I remember this being sort of the type of thing that they had six different CEOs in like one year, I think, or over three years. What? One or one or the other. It was either one or three years, but it was like serious upheaval in the company over and over and over. And I remember they tried to do all kinds of things to get like kids to buy Polaroid cameras. They had ones that made photos into little stickers. You could stick them in your locker or whatever in high school. And those were fun, I guess, but it wasn't enough to keep up with the increasing inexpensiveness of both film and digital cameras. And so the Polaroid factory was set to be shut down in 2008 when it was purchased by a group called the Impossible Project. So the Impossible Project bought a lot of equipment from Polaroid and they set up their own space, like a, a warehouse type factory deal. And they reverse engineered the film production methods so that they could make film for Polaroid land, camera, land cameras. And here's a quote. The company now makes film in both color and black and white for Polaroid 600 type, SX-70, and image spectra cameras, as well as large format 8x10 film. And last year they created a camera for the original instant film format, the first in 20 years, and updated it for the digital age. It's now powered by a smartphone app. So oh, the, that's cool. It is cool. And the Impossible Companies, or the Impossible Project, purchased the rights to the Polaroid name... I believe last year. So they are now just, they were called the Polaroid. I think they were either called the Polar. What were they called? They were called the original Polaroid corporation eventually. And then they uh, became the Polaroid corporation. So they have sort of reanimated Polaroid into uh I think it's intended to appeal to people who enjoy mid-century modern design because a lot of our aspects are sort of this mod 50s, 60s, retro-y feel. And then also to appeal to people that still enjoy film photography, which is becoming... uh, it, It almost reminds me of what it was like as film photography was being developed early on. And the people that would do it were the people who really cared about it or made a living from it. And I think that right now the people that do it are the people that either really care about it, enjoy the process, or make a living from it. So it's kind of come full circle in terms of film photography, but also with Polaroids and instant film. Although Fujifilm still makes what's called an Instax camera, and they have it's smaller pieces of film. I think they have ones that come close to the Polaroid size just like three inches by three inches or two and a half inches by two and a half inches. But uh, it's smaller film and the camera is not as, it's kind of like a clunky feel. They're plastic. They're really, uh, they're intended for, I don't mean to sound kind of snobby or anything because they're, I have two. They're great. They're fun. Uh, (laughs) It's for things like parties and, 
uh, like we had one at our wedding and we asked people to take pictures of themselves and then write like little piece well wishes on the back instead of having a a wedding sign oh a sign in book or whatever for our wedding they're used for like photo booths at parties and like I think there's sort of a fad of younger people now creating instax like photo albums and stuff so it's kind of a bit of a trend a bit of people who care about the process and then a bit of a like a party activity so that's kind of the arc instant film has taken from being something somebody had at every party and were able to use for a lot of personal and professional reasons, but mostly personal. All the way right back to that. <laughs> <laughs> but with some near demise in the begin in the middle. So that's where Polaroid went. That's fantastic. I love Polaroid cameras. So I was a I was obsessed with them when I was a kid. I really loved them. So I had I had one. And I think my grandparents had one when I was like three or four. And I don't think they ever refilled it because it would be too expensive. But I, ha I guess I had this chair that I would go and sit on and demand that my picture be taken. Oh. <laughs> and so I get, there's like a few Polaroid pictures of me sitting in this chair. But I think my grandparents like got wise to the fact that they were going to be buying a million dollars of Polaroid films. So they just like had it so that... <laughs> It would. It wasn't actually taking pictures, but like, uh, if you remember the old Polaroids, you could press the button; it would still make the noise. It does with the new ones too, and okay. or with the with the Fujifilm ones. And I've had a same issue with my daughter. She loves taking pictures, but it's usually like up her nose or like her stomach or something. But she's <laughs> holding the camera backwards and just taking ten pictures at a time. So, but she would get mad if the thing didn't if the picture didn't come out. So I started reloading the spent film back into the little film case that you put into the camera so that it would pop out pictures again of already developed pictures. But then she, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't have to buy more and more and more and more film. So I'm totally, mm -hmm. I totally understand your uh, grandparents there. Yeah. That's, it's really smart. That was a good idea. I think they were showing me the same picture over and over. <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> wow. I'm taking a very hard turn. Mine is not related to yours at all, unless you like, unless you want to relate like neurotoxins and the poison that you develop cameras with, but develop pictures with, but that that's kind of a stretch. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about um, flea and tick meds. So I was curious because I every month I give my dog Shotzi or her flea and tick meds and her heartworm meds. And I was curious. I was like, why? Where? Where is this going? Like once I give this medicine to her, what is going on? So originally I had uh, Shotzi on a pill and since then I've gone to the drops and we'll talk about both. And it's basically a once a month pill and uh, I would give it to her and then it would kill fleas and ticks. But I was like, okay, so what is happening when she takes that pill? 
when she takes that pill, um, basically the medicine gets into her bloodstream. The fleas and ticks who love blood will basically bite her. And then the, since it's in her bloodstream, then they basically get poisoned by it. It's a neurotoxin and then they die. And then some flea and tick meds will actually kill flea eggs as well. Um, I believe that the, the pill that I had her on uh, also can treat mange, which is kind of cool. It's an uh, off-label off use of the pill, but it, I guess it does work for mange. Shotzi, thankfully, has never had mange, but it's a common problem in rescue dogs that are in, like, rescues and stuff. But there are some main categories of flea and tick meds. Uh, the first one's is drops, and so that's basically a, like, it's a little tube you get according to the weight of your dog, and then every month you kind of do, like, a little stripe on their hot on their like uh, shoulder blades and then that is distributed throughout their their glands so it'll get into their skin and then it'll kind of get into their uh their sweat glands into their uh what am what am I searching for here lymphatic system yeah, it'll basically get into their system, and uh, when so it'll be in their skin, it'll be in their oil glands, and uh, once the bug bites them, it, it'll either repel the bugs itself, or the they'll basically bite the animal, and the, obviously it has to bite through their skin, and then it will get into them and they'll die. Again, it's a neurotoxin. So, you know, they're, they're very similar ways of killing the bugs. Um, another way of of doing this is by a flea collar because I was researching all of this wondering which one was the best and flea collars actually really surprised me so a flea collar now they're much better than they used to be flea collars can actually last up to seven months which was crazy like I was like really that lasts up to seven months so it basically deposits the just like the drops uh, over time so it's on your animal's neck usually it's a dog or a cat but we'll talk about uh, goats and mini horses in a little bit <laughs> it's usually a dog or a cat and it is uh, gets into their skin gets onto their fur and gets into their sebaceous glands that's what I was searching for it gets into their sebaceous glands and then it basically is the same thing it, it either repels the fleas and ticks or if the bugs actually bite bite them, it kills them. So it, it's actually there. If you consider that it lasts for seven months, it's actually a really inexpensive option. Especially, I would assume if your animal is outside all the time, or if you have a lot of animals and you don't want to spend a lot of money and you want it to be good for a long time but the the drawbacks of it are if you have little kids or people in your home that are likely to mess with the flea and tick collar and like kind of move it around or touch it you probably shouldn't use one because it can irritate your skin or it can irritate your pet skin there are flea collars that do cause allergic reactions in pets so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then what to start with if your uh, animal has flea, fleas and ticks. So if you have a bad infestation, you might want to use a flea shampoo first. So flea shampoos work differently than the flea collars and the pills and the drops. So 
this is like for a, an active infection on a pet and it it the medicine will kill the fleas and ticks or bugs on the animal but it's not probably going to last a long time so it's the manual action of actually scrubbing your pet was, is obviously going to get rid of fleas and ticks and afterwards you have to go through them with a comb to get all the buggies out if you have ever had to get bugs out of a child's hair, you'll be familiar with this process. I haven't it's, yet. It's, it's horrible and disgusting, but it needs to happen. And then everybody in your house has to wash with the horrible shampoo. But anyway, um, the, the dogs or the cats, so you would give them an actual bath, and there uh, is generally a uh, neurotoxin or some kind of toxin in it that will kill fleas and ticks. So this is good for the active infestation. And then you wait, you wait a few days, and then you can put the flea and tick medicine on the animal. Uh, this is good for like puppies or or any animal that was a rescue or, you know, was living outside and then came in and you don't want fleas all over your house, etc. So I was curious, does it only work on dogs and cats? And I was looking for, I have no plans of getting a miniature pony right now. I don't think my HOA would allow it. <laughs> but in case I did, could I get a flea collar for my miniature pony? And the answer is maybe. <laughs> uh, so the only thing I found online was a Defy the Fly collar, and it contains geraniol. So geraniol is what geraniums have in them that is a pest repellent, repellent that uh, will keep the, the bugs and stuff off of geraniums. And it says that it's good for goats, sheep, dogs, miniature horses. So... This does exist. And then people on the internet were telling, were saying that goats don't really get fleas. So it's not necessary to put any kind of flea and tick medicine on them. I don't know how true this is. Uh, I think before we talked about this, Emily, and you said you'd never noticed fleas and ticks on your goats. No, I've never noticed fleas and, well, ticks occasionally. Mm -hmm. But not the major infestations that some animals can get. Yeah. And we had a dog growing up that had a really, really bad uh, flea, I think it was a flea allergy. Like they would bite him and he would just, he had like such bad eczema from it. It was so, so, so bad. So um, that was back in the olden days when you pretty much got flea collars and then you had to like basically bomb your house and your yard. So yeah. I was probably exposed to all kind, all manner of toxins in the 80s. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, to blame for my atypical, my, my atypical neurotransmitters. Who knows? I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> anyway. And then I thought about other pets like ferrets. What about ferrets? Like, can you put flea collars on ferrets? And it turns out, no, don't ever put a flea collar on a ferret. <laughs> that first of all, it's going to come off because they're base, they're just weasels. Like they'll they'll get out of it. But I found that you can put topical drops formulated for cats on ferrets if you discuss it with your veterinarian first, which I found interesting. 
I had a friend who had a bunch of ferrets and I remember his cat giving his ferrets fleas and he had this whole like episode where he had to bathe the cat and bathe all the ferrets and basically like treat the house for the fleas because they were, you know, they eventually bite you. So you have to get rid of them if you have a really bad problem with it. But yeah, so it turns out you can put topical drops on, formulated for cats, on ferrets. Uh, but don't do flea collars because they're going to wiggle out of them because they're basically little furry worms <laughs> as far as I can tell. Little, uh, little danger noodles. Danger noodles. <laughs> So, like I said, it is uh, either di distributed into the animal's bloodstream or into the sebaceous glands and excreted in the oils on the animal, um, making the animal inhospitable um, so that it, can be a, it can't be a pest home or it kills them when it bites them or it uh, actually interrupts the, the development of the flea eggs. So they never get a chance to actually be alive. And it's generally a neurotoxin. So it gets in your pet, kills the bugs. There it is. That's where it goes. Right on. <laughs> and, oh, and also I wanted to tell people in case they are wondering. So I don't know if people are wondering, but I thought I'd mention it since I've had dogs for a long time. Um, so don't ever treat a puppy. I think it's younger than three months old with flea medicine actually get something formulated for puppies if it's an issue and talk to your vet and never use dog flea medicine on cats because it is toxic cats are cats are interesting special creatures that that are poisoned by a lot of things that that dogs aren't so you just want to watch out for it just a note just a friendly note <laughs> yeah please use the right poison on your pet <laughs> and if you have any questions there's a there's a good website that i found called pesticide research that talks about safe products and what to look out for and uh, pesticides that are toxic to humans and animals and text uh uh Pesticides that are reputable and can be used around pets or near pets. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Yeah, those are two totally unrelated things. <laughs> Completely and totally unrelated. I'm proud of us for uh, having an unrelated, unaccidentally related show. Good for us. <laughs> I'm also proud of us when we have a, an accidentally related show, so I think I'm just proud of us. I'm proud of us, period. Yeah. That's it. The end. <laughs> we are proud. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, so you can oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> so you can find you can find us on the internet. We're around. We have a Twitter. We have Instagram. We have a beautiful website. So go visit it at whereisitpodcast.com. We're around. Take your take your cute little fingers over and type in the address and go see us and like, subscribe, follow. Thank you. Thank you.